Hello everyone, I'm Peter Salovey. I'm delighted to launch this series at the start of a new calendar year. About once a month, I'm gonna speak with you about what is happening on campus, how I'm spending my time, what I'm thinking about, what others are doing. For some of the podcasts, we'll actually be joined by a member of the faculty or students or staff members or alumni uh, for a conversation. And that is true for this first podcast today. I'm joined by Professor Crystal Feemster, and she is an associate professor of African American Studies, of History, and of American Studies uh, at Yale. So today at Yale and around the country, we're observing Martin Luther King Day. And Martin Luther King Day is a day when we honor Dr. King's courage and leadership for sure, but it's also an opportunity to reflect on the broader civil rights movement and the work that remains to be done in our own country and, and around the world. So I invited Professor Feemster today to join me so that we could hear about her research and her teaching related to African-American history and so relevant today and really on all days for the challenges faced by our world and certainly in American society. So thank you for being here with us today. Peter, I'm honored to be on the program. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great, me too. You've taught a history course at Yale called the Long Civil Rights Movement. Can you talk a little bit about the class and what is meant by the Long Civil Rights Movement? So when I um, talk to my students about what do you know about the Civil Rights Movement, they start with 1954, Brown v. Board of Education. Um, and usually that narrative and what they know ends around 64 with the Civil Rights Act or 65 with the Voting Rights Act. Right? So that's the short Civil Rights that's Movement. A, that's, so 10, that's, that's a, a decade. It's really. a decade. And, um, and that is, of course, an important decade. Um, no one can deny that. Anybody who's writing about 20th century American history has to reckon with that decade. Um, and it's, it's what we call the classical civil rights narrative. We know that Martin Luther King is at the heart and the center of that narrative because he comes on the stage soon after 54 with the um, Montgomery bus boycott. But often King is either there in Montgomery or we find him in the Birmingham jail, or, and then he kind of ends, trails off after 1963 with the March on Washington and I Have a Dream speech, right? And there's a reason that King is at the center of that narrative, um, in part because as a nation we've decided that he is a national hero, and in the 80s Reagan created the national holiday that we're celebrating today, um, but also because he was a brilliant speaker, um, was a trained orator, was an intellectual, um, was able to speak to broad audience, right? Not just to ordinary black people and white people in the South, but to speak to the nation, really, um, and was a, con was a voice of our moral conscience. So I think there's a reason that he stands at the center of our understanding, but it's also problematic because we know that there's no king without the movement. Um, there's no king without hundreds of black women and men and children refusing to ride the buses in Montgomery in 54 without Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat. Um, and so I think it's important to remember that and I often say this to my students, that the movement made Martin. Martin didn't make the movement. Uh, let me ask you about a, a Yale connection, uh, uh, who is Pauli Murray, and uh, uh, a namesake of one of our residential colleges, a 65 graduate of the Yale Law School. Uh, is she important in, uh, in this history? 
Polly Murray is a key figure in the long civil rights movement. Um, in many ways, she makes the course possible in terms of structure. Um, and let me just say, I've been a longtime fan of Polly Murray from um, my days as an undergraduate. I'm a North Carolinian, it's her home state. Um, any class that I teach, Polly Murray makes an appearance, I have to say. Um, but in the long civil rights movement, I can start with Polly Murray in the 1930s, right? Um, in the 1930s, she's in New York. Um, she's there after attending Hunter College. She's a part of the kind of unionization that's happening in New York, particularly during the New Deal and right after the New Deal. And she's amazing because she is, she predates, um, let me start with the first thing that she does. She predates Brown v. Board of Education, for example. In um, 19, I want to say 39, she applies to UNC Chapel Hill to try to desegregate the graduate program. She applies to um, the School of Social Work, right? And she's denied. Um, and she calls out the university. And it's interesting because Roosevelt is there getting his honorary degree um, maybe a month after she gets her rejection letter. And, and she's rejected on the grounds that she's black. Um, and um, Roosevelt is there giving a speech um, after he's gotten an honorary degree talking about democracy. Um, and she writes to him and she says, you know, she doesn't really call him a hypocrite, but she says there's an irony here that you're making this speech at, at UNC Chapel Hill where I've been denied, um, and is this how democracy works? Um, he sends her a form letter. She publishes, publishes it in the black press, and then she also sends a letter to um, Eleanor Roosevelt, and that's the beginning of their oh, long, their long their friendship. friendship. Yeah. So, you know, she's out there um, sort of pushing a legal case before Brown v. Board of Education, right? She refuses to give up her bus on the, uh, her seat on the bus in the 1940s, um, almost 15 years before Rosa Parks, right? Um, and in the 1940s, when she's a graduate student at Howard, she leads a sit-in to desegregate the lunch counters in several of the res restaurants in DC. And then she goes on to get a law degree, understanding that the law is a tool and a method as a member of the NAACP, as a member of the March on Washington movement, which was founded by um, labor activist A. Um, a. Philip Randolph. And she does work um, to try to deal with the poll tax in the South in the 40s, right? So all of these issues that most of our students think about young people taking up in the 50s and 60s, she's already doing that yeah. work. Right? And have been doing it for 20 years. For 20 years, exactly. Um, and then she ends up here at, um, at, at Yale, ultimately doing her PhD in law. Um, and it's here that she writes her, what we think of as her treatise on Jane Crow, thinking about the intersection of race and gender and how that plays out in women's lives. She's a founder of NOW. In many ways, um, she's a contradiction. Um, she starts out um, sort of with her one-woman campaign, um, putting her in sort of direct action um, because she thinks the NAACP's legal um, act activism isn't enough, that it's not, things aren't changing fast enough. But then ultimately she turns to that. And even when we think about the civil rights movement and we think about the leaders and we think about King, a minister, uh, uh, and in some ways she's doing things 
backwards, right? Yeah, in she a way. becomes a minister. She becomes her a last minister. Profession uh, in uh, yes, her life. Uh, yeah, that yeah. she wants, she calls on a higher power than the law. And that if you look at the traditional narrative of the civil rights movement, what you see is the legal narrative, the NAACP doing that slow work in the 30s and 40s, building up to Brown v. Board of Education. And then you have the ministers sort of taking on the movement. And then you have young students moving to direct action, right? But if you start with, um, with Murray, you see that direct action first, then you see the legal, and then you see the kind of religious and moral turn. Um, so I, she's great um, in the sense that students can see uh, that there was no set path, right? Because oftentimes when we think about history, we think, oh, well, of course it happened that way. But it could have happened many different ways. And, and Polly Murray is a good example of what was possible. Yeah, you know, you're describing a, a living history, a history that is important uh, for our understanding uh, our nation and, and our world today. So in this class, the students do their own research, I, I understand. Is that an right. important feature of the, of the class? It, it is. I mean, it changes every um, Every time I teach it, uh, in terms of what I ask the students to do, um, but I do make them um, go into the archives. Um, the last time I taught it, um, taught the Long Civil Rights Movement, it was during the semester um, that the college was opening. Um, and so I was being- Polly Murray College. The Poly, yeah. Yes, the um, Polly Murray College was opening. And I really wanted to introduce the students to her in a different way. I wanted them to learn about her. Yeah. Usually I do, three lectures that are, are really focused on Polly Murray, um, but I wanted them to research her. Um, and it was, I mean, one of the great things about um, Yale is that we have so many resources, right? So I, I usually have four TFs, and that year I was able to get a Digital Humanities TF fellow um, to work with me um, in the class. And what we decided was that we were gonna have the students um, we would divide them in according to their sections. They would have a decade of Polly Murray's life. Um, and as a group, individually, they or as individuals and as groups, they would go into the archives, they would go online, they would find any primary document that they could find um, related to Polly Murray or that she had produced. Mm -hmm. um, and we uploaded them. And they were ultimately um, digitized. Um, and there is a project that the graduate student ultimately did. But the students had to um, work together in terms of like, figuring out what kind of documents do we need to have so that we can understand Polly Murray in the 1930s. Um, and what I made them do was not a traditional paper, but I made them do um, a zine, which is, um, I often think of them as pamphlets or brochures that um, um, give um, people a particular kind of information. Um, and they were used in the 60s and 70s um, in the students' movements, in the women's rights movement, because they were, um, it was before the photocopy machine. It was when they had those Xerox um, copy machines. And a zine can be eight pages. Um, you can use the front and back, but it's one sheet of paper that you fold uh, in a certain uh, way. So it's like a ditto master? Is yes, that, yeah, exactly. And so they had to create these zines, and they did amazing jobs. Um, but they had to use secondary and primary sources um, to tell us something about Polly Murray in that particular decade. Um, and then I had them do um, children's books. Um, and they could choose, and, and also last year, the last time I taught it, the course was cross 
um, cross-listed with education, um, the new education, yeah, the new education studies program. And so I thought, well, if if some of these young people are going to be teachers, um, I want them to think about um, how would you teach this to a middle school kid? How would you teach um, how would you teach civil rights to a third grader or a high schooler? Um, and they could choose which age group they wanted to produce a book for. Um, and they, I, I gave them a lot of flexibility about who the subject that they could write about, but they had to engage in primary research so that their book had to include primary documents, and they had to footnote um, secondary literature. The footnotes didn't have to go in the actual book, um, but they had to attach it separately. Um, I took them to the, um, you know, we have an amazing um, book, um, handmade book um, collection here at Yale, um, and so we went in into that and they saw different ways to make books. Um, so I try to get them into the Beinegy, the Yale Art Gallery, um, and to think of themselves as makers. Um, Cause oftentimes they leave my class and they have a, I, I used to be very traditional, write a paper, argument, thesis statement, all of that. And they have to have that in these smaller projects, but it's something that they can take away and look at. So a lot of them made coffee books that they gave to their parents for Christmas, right? Um, and so that they felt like, oh, I can do something besides just write a paper. <laughs> um, and most often the kids don't often ask their parents to read their papers, but they were really happy with yeah, these that's projects. That's fantastic. And, and, I, and, you know, recognizing that those wonderful collections, mm -hmm. you know, for example, the Beinecke Library, mm -hmm. or Manuscripts and Archives in Sterling right. Library, or, uh, or, or the galleries, um, you know, they're there for the students. Right. They're there to facilitate their learning. And right. I think our students often are surprised. They think, uh, whatever, they, that they're there for the general public, right. which they are, but, right. but, but, um, but, but the one, number one reason is for them, for their own learning. And, and, and the staff is amazing. Archives. And the yeah. staff is amazing because it, it really does um, get them in the, in the archives holding documents, not even just documents. The Beinecke will bring out material culture from posters to um, last year they brought out um, little figurines that were connected to um, Uncle, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, for example, oh. that were made in the 19th century. So the students were able to hold those things. They um, you, um, were able to hold um, like um, face cream tins, things like that, that were made for like lightening people's skin color in the 19th century. And so I think they find that really inspiring. Um, and then they have to think about, well, what do you do with this material? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, how do you write about it? How do you make it um, relevant um, in this day and age? Um, yeah, what a great experience for our students. So in one of his sermons, Dr. King says, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? And I think this is a question that we should be asking ourselves, and I hope, I hope we're asking ourselves. Uh, I'm very proud uh, of how Yale students and faculty and staff and alumni serve others in their community and, and the world, uh, you know, not just today uh, when we co commemorate Dr. King, but, but, but throughout the year. And in that sense, they're carrying on the legacy of Martin Luther King and of Pauli Murray, who we spoke about, and so many of the other pioneers of the, of the long civil rights movement. Uh, they're all working for a just and, and more peaceful world. So I want to thank you, 
Professor Feimster, for joining me uh, and reflecting on these issues and sharing your work, both in the classroom and uh, uh, as a scholar uh, on these issues. It's been fascinating, and it's uh, been an, an honor uh, to spend some time with you. Thank you, Peter, for having me, and thank you for this amazing opportunity to talk about the work that our students are doing and my own research. Well, thank you, and uh, uh, really appreciate uh, you giving us some time and your thoughts today. To members and friends of the Yale community, thank you for joining me for our first podcast. Until our next conversation, best wishes and take care. The theme music, Butterflies and Bees, is composed by Yale Professor of Music and Director of University Bands, Thomas C. Duffy, and is performed by the Yale Concert Band. <laughs>